What's going on everybody and welcome back to the channel. Uh, today I have uh, one of my favorite people in the world joining me, uh, Mr. Mike Carey, but you may know him as M.R. Carey. Uh, Mike, how are you doing today? Not too bad, thanks David. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, it's always nice having you. I mean, I know we just met, I guess not even quite a year ago during Mayday Con uh, and uh, of course I yeah, had you on TBRCon in January and it's just always, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. So. Um, yeah, but uh, I know, uh, <laughs> I know, I know you and I have, uh, have, I guess, somewhat similar weather patterns going on right now. We didn't so much yesterday, but, uh, <laughs> I, I know it's, uh, I know it's nice and dreary where you are. It's, it's kind of getting sunny here after our load of tornadoes yesterday in Alabama. Um, and I know we were supposed to have our chat, but you know, weather calls, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you sort of ducked the, uh, dodged the bullet there. Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, it was an interesting day. I mean, it was you know it was like we had the weather channel on all day, just going, all right, when's it gonna hit? When's it gonna hit? And you know we've got warnings popping up everywhere. And there's there's this thing in our I don't know if it's on national weather, but uh, on our local weather we have a thing. It's called uh, it's called watch the polygon or, uh, or or fear the polygon. Basically, the the weather station puts up these polygons of where tornadoes can go, like where the most damage would be. Uh, and right. I mean, we had like six or seven going at a time. <laughs> your, your, your former your former president did the same thing with a magic marker, I think. It's yeah. similar, similar kind of uh, similar principle. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, at, at one point, you know, we're sitting here. I'm, I'm right outside Birmingham in Alabama, and there's like there's polygons just like all around us. And I go, all right, where, where are they going to go? Do we need to get to a safe place? You know, and. It was it was nuts, but it, you know, it ended up. I think it ended up finishing up here at about four a.m. this morning. So I, I I got to wake up and listen to the three o'clock storm, uh, just because I couldn't go back to sleep. There's there's something about that three a.m. window that everything decides to hit your mind. I think we talked about it a little bit. The oh yeah. January. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. I just had all these thoughts going. <laughs> we don't we don't really get extreme weather in the uk i think we, we did have a tornado once about 10 years ago it ripped through birmingham and tore a few tiles off a roof the, the damage was horrendous um but we yeah we, we we don't have weather the way america has weather we have rainy season and then we have summer which is rainy season but with three sunny days <laughs> yeah i was about to say i was like you don't, you don't get a whole lot of of change in weather except for maybe a little warmer or maybe a little colder it's usually just pretty rainy or at least yeah. at least cloudy. <laughs> um, well, I kind of want to start out. Uh, I mean, I, I know I know a little bit about you, but I want I want to know. Tell me about uh, you know growing up. Uh, you know, maybe maybe through schooling, reading that you did growing up, and then kind of how you got into writing. Sure. Um, well, I, I I was born in Liverpool, which uh, is a um, a big port city and a big manuf manufacturing city in the UK. Um, I was born in the late 50s when it was already in decline. I mean, an awful lot of, um, of Liverpool's historical wealth came through its involvement in the slave trade, uh, the triangular uh, trade. Um, and then uh, 19th century manufacturing, which was already sort of, um, it, it, was, it was falling apart, going into decline, factories were closing, shipyards were closing. So I grew up in a, in a city that was sort of like, um, had a lot of faded grandeur and not a lot of wealth. Uh, there were a lot of areas that were very run down. You, you could call Walton, where I lived, a slum. Um, and I, I, I guess reading, my reading habits were always sort of predicated on escapism. I, I read a lot of fantasy, a lot of um, sci-fi, because it was a, it, it genuinely was a sort of way of, uh, of stepping sideways out of the world that I knew into uh, into other spaces. I think probably um, my, my gateway drug was Enid Blyton. Uh, a British writer who did a lot of fantasy books for children, The Faraway Tree, uh, The Magic Wishing Chair. And then when I got into my teens, I discovered Michael Moorcock, um, the, uh, the Eternal Champion books. I discovered Merlin Peake. Along the way, I uh, um, got, a, got into got a serious habit for American comic books. One of the advantages of living in Liverpool was that um, American comics were, were very available there. They came over as ballast in in the holds of ships. So at times when you couldn't get DC and Marvel books and Dell and Charlton books elsewhere in the country, you could get them in Liverpool. You couldn't reliably get the same books 
month in and month out, so you just bought whatever there was. Uh, so I had a, a huge collection of comics, um, which which I would then swap with my friends, and then periodically I'd sell them at a second-hand shop and buy more comics. Um, but always, always I was drawn to um, to genre fictions, to sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Never had any time for um, for realist narratives or or literary fiction. Um, and then I started trying to write novels. I guess in my late teens, I used to steal exercise books from my school. I'm not proud of this. Um, and just, 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 just fill, fill endless exercise books with these, uh, these novels. They were all very, very heavily based on Michael Morcock. In the Eternal Champion books, there's always a quest for some kind of magic artifact. So I thought, yeah, that's basically what fantasy is. Uh, if you haven't got a magic artifact, you're not in the game. So I'd have books where there was a quest for a sword or a quest for a, a medallion or a goblet or whatever. Um, and I kept on doing that into my twenties. I actually started sending the uh, these these novels in scare quotes off to publishers um, and built up the usual collection of rejection slips. And then in my late twenties, I started writing comics journalism. I started writing. Um, I mean, that's a grandiose way of putting it. I started writing reviews and articles for um, for amateur fanzines. Uh, you know, not for money, but just for the love of it. Um, and through that, I started to meet people who were actually working in the comics industry, and I started pitching uh, pitching story ideas. There was a very, very short-lived British publishing um, imprint called Apocalypse Press. They uh, they published Mark Miller's first ever book, which was Saviour, um, and they also published an anthology title called Toxic, which lasted exactly 31 issues, um, 31 weekly issues. And then it died, and I had a, a story in the last two issues of that. Um, I, had, I got exactly one check, which bounced, so they never paid me anything. Um, but, but but it introduced me to this is through that I met I met Ken Meyer. Ken Meyer was the uh, the artist on that uh, on that story, and through Ken, uh, I met Lorene Haynes, who was um, Dave Dorman's partner. And they were, they were at that point. They were trying to set up a kind of agency for comics creators, but they hadn't done it. They hadn't incorporated. So Lorene said to me, "You know, I'll, I'll rep you. I'll rep you to American publishers. Um, I'll show them your work. I'll try and drum up some uh, some trade for you. But I can't take any money for it because <laughs> um, because we're not we're not a, we're not we're not sort of geared up yet." So she did this incredibly kind thing, and she did uh, she did get me some work. She got me some work at Malibu Comics just before they went bust. Um, I did uh, an Ozzy Osbourne comic. I did a comic about the heavy metal band Pantera. Um, and through that, I started getting work at Caliber. I met uh, Mike Perkins. We did our, um, our Dr. Faustus together. I did a book called Inferno with Mike Gados. So it was like it was like the arcade game that was very popular at that time, Frogger, where the little frog is jumping across the logs, but every so often the logs sink under right. Um, every time I got work with a publisher, the publisher would go bankrupt. Um, <laughs> what, what? <coughs> Seriously, what, what Jonah did to shipping, I did to small presses. <laughs> but it, but none of it was wasted. None of it was wasted. It felt at the time like it was one step forward and ten steps back. But mm -hmm. in the end, I mean that, that that whole sequence of events took me eventually to uh, to Vertigo. I started uh, sending copies of everything I got published. To uh, to Vertigo specifically to Elisa Quitney, who was the um, the editor on the last few issues of Sandman. So I was sort of knocking on her door, and then uh, at a certain point, she uh, she opened the door. She said they were looking to do a sequel to Sandman or a, a book set in the Sandman universe, um, which would be an anthology format. Sandman presents, and they wanted to start off with a story about Lucifer. So she said, "Yeah, would you like to would you like to pitch for it?" Uh, but we need to move really, really fast because uh, they, I think they they had, they had a writer lined up, and they actually had a script. But for whatever reason, they decided not to use it. So they wanted something to fill that slot. And I, I basically spent three days putting a story idea together, not eating or sleeping, just like completely obsessed by it. And I sent that in, and Neil gave it the thumbs up. Um, Karen Berger liked it. And that was uh, that was Morning Star Option, Sandman Presents Lucifer, uh, which was my first uh, my first DC work, and you know the start of uh, the start of my comics career, really, my professional comics career. About to say that's a 
that's a heck of a start. You know, ru- ruining all these small presses and then going to Vertigo and taking off. <laughs> it, it, it was, yeah, I was, I was an overnight success in 10 years. <laughs> Better say, yeah, because, uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome to, to, to be, you know, your first thing with Vertigo is to write in Sandman. Um, that's just kind of a, an amazing experience, uh, it must be. And I think I've lost you. You still there, Mike? Uh, yep. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Better say, I was like, did I lose connection? <laughs> um, but yeah, was, that, that's that, go ahead. Sorry. It was a dream come true. I and mean, I, was, I was a huge Sandman fan at the time. And I still am. I, I love the Sandman universe. And, I, and I, I felt then, and I still feel, you know, that it had completely redefined um, what was possible in continuity storytelling, long form storytelling in comics. You know, you know the idea of the, the Coonian revolution? You know, the idea that um, uh, Thomas Kuhn came up with that science does science doesn't proceed by a, in a kind of slow, gradual, uniform way by the accumulation of, of learning. It proceeds by revolutions. You have a long period where a particular orthodoxy holds, and then somebody comes up with a radical new idea and overturns that orthodoxy, and then you have a new template, you have a new normal, new status mm-hmm. quo, and that holds that holds for 10 or 20 years or whatever, and then again, there's another revolution. I think Sandman created a revolution. I mean, you could argue that Neil was building on some of the stuff that Alan Moore had done in Swamp Thing, but I think, yeah, he was the guy who made it work. I, th- I think Sandman was the proof of concept that you can basically take a novelistic approach to comic storytelling. You, you can tell a story over five, six, seven, eight years, um, building uh, the same, building the same themes, um, creating, laying the groundwork for uh, for long, uh, involved arcs. But come and go, come into focus, and then withdraw again. Uh, and that was, you know, I, I followed that template in Lucifer. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna steal, you might as well steal from the best. <laughs> so, so we've stolen exercise books, and now we're stealing ideas. What's next, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that it, it has clearly worked for you, though. So. <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not even embarrassed about that. I, th- I think that's how you find your voice as a storyteller. You start off by this pastiching um, the writers that you actually admire, and through that you find you find your, your space. And I, I actually I could see that happening. I could feel that happening with Lucifer. If you look at Morningstar Option, and if you look at the first three issues of the monthly book, it's basically just me being Neil. It's me being as Neil as I possibly can. And then with issue four, issue four of the monthly Born with the Dead. I just had the, the sort of confidence to put out my own stall and do something that was a bit more off to one side. Um, and it, it just clicked. And it, it, uh, I mean, it didn't hurt at all that that was when Peter Gross came on board the book. And part of that change was us sort of like taking the measure of each other and finding a, a storytelling style that worked for us. And that was, you know, that was a, a, an incredible game changer. Uh, for, my, for my for my career, I've worked with Peter so many times since on so many different projects, and it's just you know he, he just always brings out the best in me. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know. Gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago, uh, but you know, Amazon started like a Kindle Worlds thing where you had, uh, I guess, relatively unknown authors and maybe some known authors that were writing stories in like bigger universes. Uh, and it didn't last very long, but I'm curious if you think that that's something that may come back. I mean, you know, you're talking about writing in Neil Gaiman's Sandman universe and so forth. Do you think that's going to be something that may come about again, that it may be bigger or that some people may start doing it with some of these? I mean, I know like people are starting to write stuff about Avengers. You've got, uh, you know, gender swap books, uh, for different DC characters, et cetera. But you think it's going to be like maybe, uh, you know, write in ABC universe, you know, as maybe, maybe an up and coming author or maybe like a, a YA sensation. I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great thing to be able to do. I mean, it's always been a, a mainstay in, in comics writing, of course, because if you're writing for DC and Marvel, inevitably you're writing with characters and concepts that came into existence 50, 60, 70 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're, 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 you're always standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and the cool thing there is, you know, finding a, a niche of your own, finding an approach of your own that, that's respectful to what came before, but is, is kind of like fresh and unexpected mm-hmm. in some ways. I, there have been, I mean, those kind of shared universes do exist in prose fiction. Um, you know, immediately I found myself thinking of George Martin's uh, Wild Cards. Um, yeah. Which, you know, which was great. Uh, and at the time felt like something, some, something felt like a model that ought to sort of um, to be copied uh, in a, in a, on a large scale. But I don't think it ever was. Um, Coincidentally, I'm, I'm working on a kind of shared universe anthology at the moment with my family. It's one of the things that we've done to survive lockdown. We've um, sort of created a, um, a world with different physical laws and different species, and we're all taking a little chunk of it and writing writing separate short stories and novellas with a view to maybe around about 2050, finally publishing it, but more more just having fun with the uh, with the concept. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, and I know that y'all just released a, a book altogether, correct? Uh, like a week or two ago? Uh, you yeah, released that, an that, e-book? That was, that was a reissue. Is that part of it? Yeah, but yeah. Okay. No, that, 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 that was a reissue of something we did um, about six or seven years ago. Oh, wow. Um, that, that, was, that was me and my wife and our daughter writing together. Um, but yeah, that, that was, I mean, that was a... a, a a hugely rewarding experience, hugely enjoyable experience. Um, it was two novels that we collaborated on, um, and it was immediately before I wrote *Girl with All the Gifts*. And, and you, you can you can see if you just look at all the stuff I did before that, and all the stuff I did after it, you can definitely see where the uh, you definitely see that it was a an inflection point for me uh, mm-hmm. in some obvious ways. For example, you know, up to that point, I'd mainly written male protagonists. And I think, apart from Coley in the Rampart trilogy, uh, all my protagonists since have been uh, and women. Uh, but I think the voice changes as well. I think there's a lot more experimentation with voice because when you when you collaborate with other writers, one of the things you have to do is to find a way of um, harmonising the different voices, finding a, a a way to like finding a convergence. Of your different styles, so that the um, the transitions from one voice to another are not too jarring. Uh, and, and I think that that coming out of that, I was much more um, sort of open to experimenting with voice and point of view. So go with all and the remind, gifts. And remind me the remind me the title of that of that new, uh, or I guess the re-release. The, the, there's two two novels. So it's uh, the Steel Seraglio, uh, which was published in the UK as City of Silk and Steel, and the House of War and Witness. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, they're both kind of, um, the, the, the inspiration was the Arabian Nights. So the first one actually has a sort of ancient Middle Eastern setting. The second one is a um, uh, European setting. But they both do that thing that the Arabian Nights does brilliantly, which is uh, they have nested narratives, stories within stories, um, transitions from one point of view to another, uh, lots of narrative playfulness. Uh, that, that, that was basically the uh, the brief that we set ourselves and then we did the same thing in a, in a slightly different way in the second book okay um tell me about your uh i guess how your writing process has changed since you started writing comics to to writing novels and then you know how how difficult was it transitioning from comics to novels because I, I have to imagine it's a completely different process it is it is a it is a different process yeah uh, very much so so um as i was saying earlier i i through my 20s, I wrote lots and lots of abortive novels. Uh, some of them huge, ridiculous, sprawling things, and some of them uh, smaller and self-contained. But they had one thing in common, which is that they were really badly structured. I, I just didn't, I didn't understand story structure. I mean, I knew when I was reading a story that was shapely, but I never thought about what made it shapely, and I never planned. So I just start start into a story and then go wherever it seemed to uh, to take me. Um, when I moved from that into comics, I learned it the hard way that comics, uh, comics, because it's a small canvas and a canvas of a very fixed size, you've got to be incredibly disciplined about things like transitions between scenes, about how many scenes you have within, within a, a given episode of the story. I mean, you've got 20 pages or 22 pages. If you run out of pages before you run out of story, then you're stuffed. 
you have to you have to become a miser. You have to budget the story. You have to think how many how many pages do I need for this scene? Can I afford to have a splash page here? So you're consciously making those decisions rather than just sort of um, letting them go on the nod. Uh, and I be, through that, I became I became better at planning. I became better at pacing. I became better at sort of like deciding um, how to how to build the story around key beats and around character arcs. Coming back out into writing prose was the easiest thing I've ever done because the canvas for a novel is however however long or short you want it to be. If you decide you want to have like a, a digression, a subplot that's going to add another fifteen thousand words to the book, nobody cares. Nobody's going to tell you, nope, you've run out of pages. Um, so you have this incredible, this incredible freedom, and you kind of get you kind of get drunk on the power. Um, and you have you have other freedoms as well. I mean, with a novel, you're you're writing it over the space of maybe six months or nine months, a year maybe, um, and at any point in that time. You can just you can just like go right back up to the top and throw in another character, another beat. You can seed uh, a setup here for a payoff there. You've got that kind of vertical freedom through time. Whereas with a monthly comic book, you have a deadline there, and then once it's in and it's been accepted, it goes to the penciler. And if you have a better idea two weeks later or two days later, it doesn't matter. It's too late. It's already gone off. Um, so you have to. It's it's like it's like um, it's like uh, trying to jump on board a runaway train. You know, you're, everything's moving all the time, um, and you're you have to service it in real time. Um, so moving from comics to prose was easy. It was very easy. Moving from comics to screenwriting was hard because <laughs> because the screenplay looks like a comic and it's not. It's not a comic at all, uh, and the superficial similarities kind of betrayed me. When I when I first started trying to write screenplays, I wrote these terrible, terrible, uh, um, unworkable things, which were they were they were kind of like shot for shot in the way a comic script is, you know, because in a comic script you're defining the image, you just you know, you write the dialogue alongside it, so you, it's kind of like you're not just the direct the writer, you're also the director and the um, cinematographer. You're defining, the, you're defining the camera angles, you're defining the transitions, the page turns, and so on. Uh, if you try to do that in a screenplay, the director and the cinematographer will find out where you live and they'll come to your house and beat you to death with the screenplay. Um, and, and no jury will convict them. You, know, you, you have to take a much more sort of uh, an imagistic approach in the screenplay. You have to sell the scene without doing it beat for beat, um, which is strange, and, and which is a, a really tough thing to learn. So comics were a false friend there. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know, I, I I think about and kind of what you're saying. You just when you when you get to prose writing, you can come back. So, but like you know, if you if you have a character idea after say two or three issues that you've already released, you go, well, I guess I have to come out with a different arc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to come up with a completely different storyline, and you can just include that, the old characters. <laughs> that happened to me when, when, I, when I was on X Men. Um, I wanted to use a character that Grant Morrison had created, Cassandra Nova, uh, who I thought was like the coolest new X Men villain for a long, long time. And I was quite a long way into planning the arc out, and my editor, Mike Martz, said, uh, You can't have Cassandra Nova because Joss Whedon is going to use her over in um, Astonishing X Men. So you'll just have to swap her out for somebody else. I said, but, but it, oh, no. <laughs> and and what, was really, what was really annoying was that Joss's story was brilliant. It was a, it was a great story. So he took, he took the character and he did something better with her than I was going to do. Now, you, you don't forgive that easily. <laughs> but but I, guess, I guess it's easier to forgive, right? At least he did something, something really good with it. You're like, gosh, I could have done so much better. <laughs> But it's uh, um, yeah, coming back to sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no you're good. Um, yeah, as, as I was saying before, I think one of the one of the joys of writing comics is that um, you're you're taking this story which has existed for longer than you've been alive, basically. Uh, I, I, Ross Caffney said that if you look at um, the Marvel Universe stories just by themselves, they're the single biggest mythological text. That the human race has ever produced. I know there've been counter arguments. You know, there's been some kickback against that as to whether they whether they count as mythology since they don't require you to actually believe in superheroes. But um, still, 
gigantic stories and you're kind of you're in the privileged position of like adding adding to those stories that you know stories that you grew up on stories that uh, that, that like kind of form the furniture of your mind and then you you, you you get to go in and you get to be part of that incredible edif edifice uh, I can remember when I was maybe three four months into writing X-Men I would created a group of villains called the children of the vault who were they were post-human, but they were mutants. They were kind of like um, they were post-human in a different way, technologically enhanced. They had superpowers that were based on technology that that had been sort of built into their bodies, and which they could swap out in various ways. And somebody sent me a, an email with a link to a Wikipedia article. The Wikipedia article was about the Children of the Vault. They were they were, they'd become part of canon. They were real, yeah. You know, they were real in the sense that they were part of the X Men universe, and people were acknowledging that fact. And it was one of the happy, happiest, <laughs> happiest days of my life up to that point. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, I, we were talked about writing in two universes, and and yeah, clearly writing in X Men. I mean, it's been around for it feels like forever. Um, but you know, you know, now they've got uh, the new. Uh, the new Jedi novels uh, and, and comics and children's books and so forth, you know, like started with Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. Uh, so you have this whole brand new history that's being written. Uh, and I mean, they're yeah. releasing like two or three books or comics or something like every couple of weeks, it feels like. Um, and then, you know, I'm, uh, I've been reading a lot of graphic novels here uh, since the beginning of January. It's just, it's, it's, I don't know, so, something about being able to see artwork in, in, having you know some some bubbles here and there with some words it's, it's been easier reads i guess but uh you know i've read a lot of dc stuff so i've read a lot of uh of scott snyder's uh batman uh stuff that he read especially like all of his metal novels that he written and it just goes to show you that there's all these ideas that are still bubbling around for characters that have been around for forever that you've never read before uh so it, yeah. it, it'd be interesting to see how it continues and as, as, yeah, as, as Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. I think you know, comics, because they function so differently, because they come out on a monthly schedule, and because they, they kind of, they're open-ended, they're long-form in the, in the sense that they exist over decades. You know, the X-Men debuted in 1963, so we're nearly, <laughs> nearly, six, nearly 60 years on, uh, yeah. and, and stories are still being told. Um, that basically, you know, it, it makes, it gives them a unique um, a uniqueness as an art form, I think. There's that kind of massive interconnectedness and indebtedness in the stories, which until recently was impossible to achieve in any other medium, mm. I think. You, you could say now it is happening through sort of big multimedia franchises like the, the Star Wars universe. Um, the, I'm sure there are other examples, but the, the Marvel universe, the universe movies have done the same thing, has managed to achieve that what the comics do so well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it brings in a whole new generation of fans too, because you know there there are a lot of kids who grew up not reading comic books, and then you you put this giant flashy movie up that everybody loves, and you're like, oh, I want to read about that. And you get them reading comics. I mean, if you can find them, you know, some of the original issues, but now a lot of them are digital, so you can kind of have you know, your pick. They still may be a little pricey, but they're worth it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, th I think the same thing for Star Wars. I mean, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the generation that got to see the original trilogy in theaters. And so I saw them on VHS in the 90s. And then, of course, you had the first three movies that came out a little later. And, and you know, every, everybody has different opinions on those. Uh, and then you, of course, got the, the newest trilogy that came out. But it's always nice just seeing you know, they're, they're, they're kind of cyclical. And they're always getting a new batch of fans that, you know, may have never seen it before or not been a, you know, been like, ah, oh, sci-fi or whatever. And then they see it and they're like, okay, maybe I like sci-fi or maybe I like fantasy now. Um, you know, you still have that argument, you know, a Star Wars fantasy or sci-fi. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, so I want to ask you though, cause clearly, you know, your first novel came out in 2006, um, but you've been writing comics for a, a long time previously to that. So I, I want to know about your, you know, a few more of your years in comics, you know, so, you know, you, you hit with Vertigo and then it kind of, it kind of launch boarded you. Um, so I want to know, you know, a little bit about your years with like Lucifer and Hellblazer and, uh, so in my, in my newest fantasy, The Unwritten, uh, I, I friggin' love that series. It's, it's phenomenal. Oh, cool. So, so tell me a little bit about you know your you know your kind of years and those kind of bigger name you know and X Men if you want to if you want to throw X Men in there. 
um, just kind of like your experience, I guess, through that and then up into publishing your first novel. Right. Well, um, so yeah, my, my, my intro at DC was Sandman Presents Lucifer, and uh, the, the editor on that was Lisa Quidney. And she commissioned two miniseries from me, uh, Sandman Presents Lucifer and Sandman Presents Petrifax. But then she went away on maternity leave, and it was a maternity leave that then ultimately became uh, a career move. You know, she, she, didn't, she never came back as a full-time editor at DC. Uh, she became a writer uh, rather than an editor. She's, yeah, she's a successful novelist in her own right now under a pen name. Um, so suddenly I didn't have a foot in the door anymore. The only person I knew at DC had, uh, had, had gone and wasn't coming back. So I, I, I took the chance that that summer I went across to San Diego for the first time. This would have been like 1990, um, And while I was there, I stopped off on the East Coast and visited the DC offices um, in New York. And Alisa had mentioned me to Shelley Bond, who back then was Shelley Roberg. Uh, and she said, you know, if, you, if you check in with Shelley at the DC booth in San Diego, you can talk about projects, maybe get something else going. Um, and I did that. And it was really obvious that Shelley didn't want to talk to me. Um, we, we, we ended up we ended up collaborating for many, many years on lots and lots of different things. But the first time we met, it was a, it was a disaster. Um, she didn't she wasn't particularly interested in fantasy books. And that was what I was pitching. Um, she kind of resented being asked to babysit another editor's um, uh, pro pro protege. So she basically said to me, yeah, I've got 20 minutes to give you and I'll buy you a cup of coffee or a hot dog, but not both. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're sitting up on the rooftop, uh, in the rooftop cafe at the San Diego Convention Center and I'm pitching and pitching and pitching ideas to her. And she just keeps saying, nope, already got something like that. No, it doesn't sound like my kind of thing. No, that's dull. That's not workable. And at a certain point, I realized, okay, this is the kind of game where you can only win by not playing. So I, I said to her, you know, um, I've got some other stuff, but you know, you're, you're, you're pressed for time. There's a short story on Elisa's desk back in back in New York. Um, take a look at it. Uh, I, I, I pitched it to Flinch, the horror anthology. I said, if you if you want to use it, you know, maybe we can. Maybe we can talk. And then she called me. She called me two weeks later and said, "Yeah, I like the short story. I've got an artist for it. That was Craig Hamilton. Um, let's 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 go ahead." And then we we became friends, and I got into that same cycle of just pitching and pitching and pitching. Um, what came out of that was the Lucifer Monthly. They uh, they, had, they initially had no plans to do a Lucifer Monthly. They wanted Sandman Presents to be just um, anthology three, four, five issue arcs. But I pitched the Lucifer Monthly and got that accepted. And for a long time, that was the only thing I was doing. Um, I, was, I had a full-time job as a teacher, but the only creative work I was doing was Lucifer. And then um, Brian Azzarello stopped writing Hellblazer. And Will Dennis, the editor, called me up and said, do you want to write Hellblazer? And I said, no. <laughs> because, I know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I said, no, because... <laughs> It didn't. It didn't occur to me that you could write two books at the same time. I, I, I oh. thought, you know, Lucifer's taken up all my bandwidth. I can't. I can't do this. I can't write two books. So I said, "Thanks for thinking of me, but no." And well, Dennis, I'm, I'm very happy to say, said, "Well, look, you know, that's a stupid answer. So I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. I'm going to put the phone down, and I'm going to wait for you to call me and say that you changed your mind." Um, <laughs> Which took about two hours. I've been internally in internally in his debt for that. So yeah, so then I ended up writing Hellblazer alongside Lucifer for um, it's around three or four years, um, and I was doing a lot of mini series at first go there. And I'd met um, yeah, the other editors. I'd met Will. I'd met Joan Hilty. Um, I, I was very sort of uh, I had a very good relationship with Shelley. Did some work with Karen, um, and I was sort of like I was learning learning my trade really. Because um, to begin with, I was just blagging it, you know, just making it up as I went along. Um, but I had a, I had a, a yen to write superhero books as well. I, I, I love, I love superhero stories when they're done well, and I think, yeah, they're one of the genres that still, their part, their center of gravity is within comics. You can do superhero stories in other media, obviously you can, but comics is where they were born, and comics is where they work best. And I was pitching stuff. I was trying to get stuff uh, launched at the DCU. 
I did a Superman arc of three issues, I did a Batman arc of three issues, and I did four issues of Firestorm. And in each case, the stories were uh, were accepted, they were green-lit, uh, and then I'd, I'd submit the script, and then they'd get spiked, I'd get paid for it, but the comics never came out. I was really frustrated. The reasons were, were different in each case. The Superman story involved a shooting, and unfortunately, coincided with a with an actual tragedy and the editor made made the decision and i guess it was the right decision obviously it was the right decision not mm -hmm. to uh, not to proceed with it at that time but it looked like you know i was i was not getting any traction at dc they saw me as a vertigo writer and not a superhero writer so i went across to san diego in i want to say around about 2000 2000 three or so. No, I'm sorry. I'm lousy at time. I'm really lousy at time. I, I, exist, I exist in a timeless void. But I, I went to San Diego and I bumped into Axel Alonso and he was, he said, you know, you should write some superhero stuff. I said, I would love to write some superhero stuff. And he said, well, he said, I know you're exclusive at DC at the moment, but if you ever find yourself not exclusive um, at DC, then, you know, give me a call and we'll see what we can do. And after I came home, I got a phone call from Joe Casada saying, you know, what Axel said, I'm saying it too. We, we, can, we can find you a book. If you want to do a superhero book, we can find you a book. So I, I let my exclusive lapse at DC, which felt like a very bold and dangerous thing to do. Um, and I, I, sort of, I knocked on Marvel's door and said, you, know, you said you could find me a book to write. And Mike Mars said, yeah, write X-Men. I said, Holy fuck! Yeah, okay. I'll wait, I'll wait. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was that was that was amazing. I was I was um, uh, I was starting at the same time as Ed Brubaker. Ed was writing the flagship title, Uncanny, and I was writing um, you know the, the second string book, Adjective for Sex Men. So Mike said, yeah, obviously Ed gets first choice. Yeah, he chooses his team. You can have anybody else. So. So Ed got like um, I guess you could say the headliners. Yeah, he had Cyclops, he had Emma Frost, he had uh, Wolverine, um, Nightcrawler, and I had like the whole of the rest of the X Men universe to play with. Yeah, I, I could make a team up out of you know, all of these hundreds and hundreds, thousands of, of wonderful characters. And basically, over over the years that I worked and worked in the uh, in the X Men franchise, I kind of made it my hallmark to just keep on mixing and matching characters that nobody else was using. I was like, um, I'd take a character like Frenzy, say, or Ariel, and just like dust them off, um, put them back into the center of a story. And it was, it was felt like an amazing privilege to be able to do that. It, it was just, it was just crazy fun. Yeah. But as I can imagine, I mean, you just like, I get all these toys I get to play with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to take this one. I'm going to put it over here. I'm going to really screw this up, and it's going to be great. <laughs> it, it, um, it was it was a good time. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. And so somewhere in the middle of that, um, I started pitching uh, novels again. I, uh, there's an editor at Simon and Schuster, Darren Nash. Uh, he was in charge of their science fiction list, and I pitched uh, a sci-fi novel to him, which he accepted. But then, kind of like uh, like the old small press thing, uh, Simon and Schuster cancelled the list. So the, the list the list ceased to exist. I had a green light, but but the list didn't exist anymore. So it wasn't going to get published. Um, and I, I, there were a couple of years where I was talking to Darren uh, in, in a general way about possibilities. And then at a certain point, I pitched the Felix Caster books, and I sent Darren a bunch of Hellblazer stuff which he immediately sent back saying, I have all these, I have all these issues. And he was already a Hellblazer fan. So I pitched Felix Castro as being kind of like a prose, a prose Hellblazer. Um, and that was my, that was my sort of, um, my first foray back in, back into prose fiction. Okay. Um, so, so we're going to talk a little bit about your prose fiction now, because um, clearly you've got a new release coming out next week. Um, yes. But I want to know: Can you um, can you tell me about the Rampart trilogy so far? Um, you know, clearly we've got uh, the Book of Coley and the Trials of Coley, uh, as you can kind of see w whether or not the sun comes in and out of the clouds. 
Uh, and then, of course, we got fall coming out next week. But can you tell me about the trilogy so far? Yeah, certainly. So it's um, it's post-apocalyptic, you know, which is um, you know part of my comfort zone. It's uh, it's the first post-apocalyptic story I've written since Girl with All the Gifts and Boy on the Bridge, and it's very different from those, I think. Whereas um, Girl with All the Gifts takes place, uh, you know, a few years after the the apocalypse, a few years after the fall of the fall of our civilization. The Coley books take place centuries after. Um, so our global civilization has ceased to exist. We're not quite sure why. There's a new sort of quasi-medieval um, uh, way of life. Uh, people living in small, isolated villages. Uh, isolated because the entire biosphere has become incredibly um, dangerous. Coley says, very early on in the first book, he says everything that lives hates us, or at least it comes at us as though it hates us. Not just all of the animals, um, but also trees and plants. Trees and plants are, are, um, are really, really dangerous. They, they, there's been a, a certain amount of genetic experimentation, genetic recombination, and at a certain point, humanity has lost control of that process. So you have trees which were designed to sort of deal with um, the, the problems of, of deforestation. They were designed to find uh, alter alternative or supplementary nutrients when the soil was bad or the air was bad, and basically they just eat people. Um, they, 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 they'll, 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 they'll crush, they'll crush you, they'll crush you between their their, their branches and their trunks, and then the roots will absorb all of the uh, all of the good nutrients from your from your shattered body. And uh, there, there are all these, yeah, there are all these uh, variants on that. All of these, these uh, life forms that have sort of grown away from their original templates because of um, human um, mucking about with, uh, with, with 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 genes. Coley's world has been through environmental collapse, but it's also been through a lot of ham-fisted interventions to try to stave off environmental collapse. So all of the things that all of the sort of geoengineering projects that are being seriously discussed now, like um, uh, seeding the oceans with algal blooms to sort of bond carbon, uh, to, to, to sort of tie up carbon and, and then sink it in the sea, uh, or, or firing um, silver, um, silver compounds into the upper atmosphere to reflect sunlight back. All of those things have been tried and they've all failed. Uh, but they failed in catastrophic ways that have actually um, then kind of destabilized the biosphere even more. So that's that's the world the Coley grows up in. They don't have they could they, they can't produce um, technology of their own, advanced technology of their own. That that kind of knowledge has been lost. In some ways, it's been deliberately um, not just lost but deliberately confiscated. Uh, one of the things that's happened in the intervening centuries is um, a deliberate drive to destroy um, literacy. There was a government that confiscated books and and, uh, and burned them in massive numbers. And of course, there are no computers, there are no files, no digital artifacts of any kind. What there are are a few pieces of legacy tech, which have survived through those uh, two or three centuries of intervening time. And if you can use those, use that legacy tech, it gives you an incredible amount of power and influence. In Coley's village, there are just four, exactly four pieces of tech. And when you reach the age of 15, you get to try out one of the pieces. And if it responds to you, if it wakes up in your hand and activates for you, you become a rampart. You become what part of the ruling elite. Otherwise, you, know, you, you do something else. It's a, it's a cooperative community. Uh, Cold, Coldy's mother runs a, a sawmill. Uh, she's responsible for uh, going out and dealing with those, you know, trying try to take uh, branches from those carnivorous trees. Um, so that they can be used for building. Um, Coley tries out, he reaches his 15th birthday, he tries out with uh, with one of the four pieces of tech, he fails, but then he makes a, um, a momentous discovery. He discovers that actually the process is not fair. It's uh, There's a thumb on the scales. There's somebody who's deciding whether you succeed or fail. And what he, what he does on the basis of that sort of determines the rest of his life. He steals, he steals a piece of inactive tech a piece of um, machinery from the from the from the basement of Rampart Hold, where where the uh, where the, where these uh, these ramparts, the elite, where they live. The 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 inactive tech has never done anything uh, in the in in you know in the lifetime of anyone living, but Coley steals a piece of piece of tech, a little a little uh, a little silver box like thing about that size, and it turns out to be a music player. 
a media player, and it does wake up. He uh, he figures out that if you expose it to sunlight, the battery recharges, and mm-hmm. it wakes up in his hands. And it, it, it there's an AI inside this this device, and the AI is a dead Japanese pop star, Madonna Aware, and she becomes Coldy's best friend. And at that point, the theft is discovered, and he has to leave the village. And it's it's a it's a kind of road journey. Um, it's also it's a it's a, a, a story of how the past influences the present, how the past determines the present. At a certain point, Coley has to sort of try to find out how you know how how the world that he he knows came into existence. Um, he delves into that history to better understand uh, his own situation. He makes some friends and allies along the way. There's a a, a doctor, a healer uh, named Ursula, who has her own piece of tech, which is a kind of robotic horse called a drudge. Um, and there's some medical tech inside the drudge. Uh, he meets a, a young trans woman, Cup, uh, who is uh, the, the, the acolyte of a, a cannibalistic cult, but who eventually uh, the, uh, eventually becomes, reluctantly, comes on side and becomes part of Coley's, uh, Coley's little band. And over the space of the three books, they, um, they kind of, they, they go on a journey, a quest, which in the long run takes them back to their starting point but with, with knowing a lot more and with a lot more um, a lot more at stake a lot more uh, decisions to make about their own future and about the future of the world okay fantastic yeah i know uh, i know my contributor jason uh, absolutely loved this trilogy he finished uh, as you know book three the other day and, and reviewed it yeah. so uh it's, it's definitely that great, one that, great uh, review. <laughs> so yeah go check it out yeah um so uh you know, clearly this is, it's got to be a little bit of like an eco thriller to it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tim Levin's Eden that came out last year from Titan Books. I have it here, but I haven't read it yet. Okay. I, I, I highly recommend it. I, I, I read it and, uh, and reviewed it last year. And I think I, I, I saw Josh Malman blurb it and I was like, okay, I got to read it. Um, and uh, I think, I think Titan actually used a little bit of my, of my review on, on the Amazon's website, but yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. If, if you, you know, kind of like that eco thriller, but once you said trees killing people, I was like, I got a book for you. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's one of the, I mean, uh, I was talking about voice earlier, about experimenting with voice. The, one of the first things that came to me was Coley's voice, which is kind of, you know, he's, um, he's someone who's learned to read and write very late in his life and he's not very good at it. You know, he, he, he his language is very sort of um, very crude and hacked about, very simple. Um, it's it's kind of inspired by Huckleberry Finn. I, I wanted to tell a story in that kind of energetic but uh, but rough and ready sort of prose. That's awesome. So uh, clearly, Fall of Coley uh, hits the shelves on the twenty third. So next Tuesday, not even a week from now. Uh, is the story fully wrapped up or do you intend to maybe revisit, revisit the world in the future or are you like, I'm going to clean my hands and go on to the next thing? It, I, Coley's story is wrapped up, but the world is, the world is wide open. Yeah, there's, um, there are a lot of characters who are in, introduced along the way who I would love to revisit. I don't, I don't think I would revisit Coley's story in the same way that if I went back to the Sandman verse, I probably wouldn't revisit Lucifer's story because I took it to where I wanted it to, to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the whole of the whole of the Coley trilogy, the whole, the whole of the Rampart trilogy takes place in and around Great Britain, in Great Britain and um, in the waters off the coast. Um, you never get to hear what happened in Europe or what happened in uh, in other parts of the world. So <clears throat> it would be it would be quite cool, I think, to take some of the characters from the Rampart trilogy through the Channel Tunnel and get them to sort of like see what's happening on the continent. Uh, but there are lots of things that, that are set up um, which could be paid off. And I loved, I really loved writing in that world. So I, I definitely wouldn't rule out um, new stories, but they wouldn't be, you know, the, 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 the ending of Fall of Coley is an ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so you said it was uh, it was your comfort zone, but what is your fascination with po- post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction? Oh God, I mean, it's, it's hard to it's hard to explain. I think there's lots and lots of different strands to it. I think I think one of the amazing things you can do um, with post-apocalyptic stories is you can kind of um, you can kind of look at this is going to sound really pretentious. You can look at the human condition in kind of um, under laboratory uh, uh, settings, um, 
most of the time, if you think about it, most of the time as, as we go through life, what we do, what we say, um, they're, they're sort of determined by the social roles that we're playing. There are rules and regulations laid down, some of them like literally laws, but most of them kind of un, un, unspoken assumptions about what's acceptable and what isn't. So in a post-apocalyptic story, you get to look at what people are like when all of those frameworks fall away. What, you, get, you get to answer the question, what's, what's the basic kit and what's just learned behaviors? Um, and sometimes you, know, you, you, you can come to some very bleak conclusions. I think I, I, think I, I write kind of optimistic post-apocalypses. I think even Girl with All the Gifts, which you know, deals with the, the complete annihilation of humanity, still, still kind of ends on a, on a hopeful note. And in Coley, um, yeah, it's it's it, 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 there's there's definitely a sort of um, there's an optimistic an optimistic message I think about our stewardship of the environment, about how we find a way to reconcile our needs and the needs of the rest of the biosphere. So that's part of part of the uh, the joy of it I think is it's just ex those explorations. But I think also we're kind of living through we're living through the first what feels like the beginnings of. Um, of a collapse, the, the beginnings of a, a, a global cataclysm. And I think, you know, some, somebody said this about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, that the people who lived through it didn't know that they were living through it because it happened over centuries. And in the right. same way, I think, you know, we, we, we're living through the start of something. Our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, you know, the, 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 the later generations are going to see that process unfolding. And it feels like the global civilization that we've created is a machine with billions of moving parts and it's very very fragile and it's it's starting to starting to go out of whack so i think i think there's a sense in which when you write a post-apocalyptic story you're kind of prodding that bruise you're you're, you're, you're looking looking at our own immediate future through a through a um through a kind of funhouse mirror yeah and i think also also there's a weird comfort to be had from the world ending. If the world ends, an awful lot of things that, wor that worry us now, an awful lot of things that like uh, that torment us from day to day, like you know, um, getting a job, keeping a job, paying the mortgage, etc., uh, doesn't matter anymore. It's just it's just all about catching a rat and cooking it for dinner. It does. It does, it does feel like a weight lift off the shoulders. You know, oh, no more mortgage. This sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I think John, I think John Wyndham coined the term the cozy apocalypse. Uh, yeah, I think there is there is there's a sense in which the end of the world, to some extent, comes as a relief. Yeah, and I guess I guess it also helps that you know we don't know what that future actually looks like. So it's almost there's so many different variables that can lead to different things, different paths. So I feel like you know there's there's just a lot to work with when you. Yeah, you know, like in any, like with any fiction, I mean, you you can kind of make it up as you go, and you know, you never know if it's gonna be fact or not. Um, but yeah, as far as the whole like we're we don't know for that we're technically living through a collapse. I mean, you can kind of feel it. I mean, you you know, ever since the beginning of the pandemic, you can just kind of see the decline. I mean, you know, politics and everything aside, I mean, th there's just there's just a different tone and and so forth going on right now that is is very much a weight uh that who knows if it's ever going to get lifted off you, you definitely start to start to see how how fragile uh the status quo is how, how things that you just thought were eternal turn out to be really shaky on their basis mm -hmm. absolutely so uh and you you mentioned this in your response but i was gonna say by the way thank, thank you for writing super bleak books that always seem to breed empathy and hope at some point <laughs> thank you no, I, I think i think i am i am i tend to sort of like um i guess I, i'm sort of a humanist I, I know the human race is capable of appalling things but it's capable of amazing things as well and, and, I, and I, I kind of i i in my fiction, at least, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I gotcha. So um, now your your past, uh, I would say your past several, but your past few books deal with you know younger protagonists. Do you find them easier to write due to their inexperience with the world around them, or is there like another driving force, or they just easier to empathize with? Uh, what's you know what's kind of your your reasoning? I think um, 
what's happening actually is that when I write adult protagonists, it doesn't work because <laughs> in between, so you have Girl with All the Gifts and then you have Fellside, then you have Boy on the Bridge and then you have Someone Like Me and then you have the, the, the Rampart trilogy. So the novels that had the adult protagonists, Fellside and Someone Like Me, just basically were, were um, considerably less successful than the ones that had uh, younger younger protagonists. So what, whatever whatever I did right, it go with all the gifts. Um, I don't know. It it, it, it seems to uh, it seems to be something something that either clicks or doesn't click. And <clears throat> I, at the moment, I'm just having more success with um, with with younger with books with with a younger a younger point of view. I mean, with, with, with in the case of Melanie, in the case of the girl with all the gifts, that was kind of the um, the driving force. It was where I started. You know, the idea of a a monster who is also an innocent. Uh, a monster who you can completely empathise with, and who is only conditionally a monster for mm -hmm. reasons that uh, yeah that, that are outside of our control. Um, I was sort of I was sort of riffing on Frankenstein there, um, again stealing from the best. Um, <laughs> with Coley, to co the, I guess the other yeah the other thing that's happening is that these are short stories that kind of took root in my imagination and became novels. So go with all the gifts. There was a short story called Iphigenia and Alice, which is actually like the first few chapters of the novel written as a short story. Um, and then with Coley, I wrote a book called, I wrote a short story called um, All Looks Red Earth, which was, um, it's actually fantasy. It's not, it's not sci-fi at all. And it has magic rather than legacy technology. But it, but it did have the voice. It had the Coley voice. Um, and once I'd written it, I decided I wanted to carry on in that world, with, not, sorry, not in that world, but with that voice. I wanted to find a, um, a way to sort of import that voice into a longer, into a longer narrative. Um, but I guess, I guess it's also true that I like coming-of-age stories. I like stories about characters who, who are finding out who they are. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's something endlessly fascinating about that. I gotcha. Um, so I just, it's kind of a one-off question. Um, can you can you tell me a little bit about uh, the the movie for the girl of the gifts like that that adaptation going from writing the book and then it becoming a big hit and then going to big screen what was that process like it was it was it was wild it was really 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 strange but really exciting so it, but it kind of didn't happen like that it, 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 the short story came into existence. I wrote the short story for an anthology that was edited by Tony Kellner and Charlene Harris, um, An Apple for the Creature. So they, 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 they would do these themed anthologies every year. And the theme was always uh, something sort of quite, quite bland and banal, like um, uh, home improvements or family vacations. But the idea was to do a supernatural or dark fantasy or horror take on that theme. And the year that they invited me to um, to, to submit a story, the theme was school days. So I wrote a story about a, a little zombie schoolgirl, that was Melanie. Um, I'd sent the story off. Uh, hadn't, the, the anthology hadn't come out, but around about that time, I was meant to be writing a kind of codes and conspiracies thriller under, under a pseudonym for Orbit, and I was hating it. I was really not getting on with it at all. So I, I, I went to my editor and begged her to let me out of the uh, the contract so that I could write the novel Girl with All the Gifts instead. And it was a hard sell. She, 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 wasn't, um, she wasn't convinced initially. And at the same time, I was working with a producer, an independent producer, Camille Gatan, on a movie, a sci-fi movie, based on somebody else's novel. And we lost the rights. We were just ready to go to script, and the rights were taken away from us. And Cammy turned around and said, "What else could we do?" And I said, "Well, I have this short story." So the the, the the novel, the novel and the screen, the novel and the movie were approved at the same time, and I was writing oh. writing them side by side. So it wasn't it wasn't that the movie was an adaptation of the novel. Weirdly, oh, okay. but both, both the movie and the novel were kind of elaborations on the, on the short story, and it was it was amazing. It was just such a wonderful time. I was uh, I was working on. The, the two versions of the story, finding two different pathways through the same the same story space. So I was kind of like, I was living and breathing this world. And somehow the decisions that we were taking in the one made the decisions in the other easier, just clarified um, the way the stories had to articulate. Because you know, there are big differences. It's the same story, but 
movies are a different toolbox for storytelling than novels are. So you have to take different approaches, different approaches to get to the same end point. So for about a year and a half, I was just basically uh, doing that, writing Melanie's story in different versions. Uh, inevitably, because films have a longer life cycle than novels do. There was a long period after the novel came out when we were still in pre-production of the movie. The novel came out in January 2014, and we didn't um, go to um, production until June 2015, so like 18 months later. I was on set for an awful lot of the time. I got to meet um, Glenn Close, Gemma Austin, Paddy Considine, and Senya, um, our, our wonderful Melanie. Uh, who had never been in a feature role before. That was her first ever feature. And she's on screen for like 108 of 110 minutes. You know, the, the, the movie depends absolutely on her performance. And she was just, just amazing. And, and it, was, you know, it was great to be part of that. I went on the tech recce's when we were choosing locations. Um, I got to do rewrites on set. I just got to be part of the whole thing. I think normally um, the last thing a film director wants on set is the writer of the novel. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they're, 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 they're at best a pain in the arse and, and at worst a sort of an, 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 actual, an actual distraction. Um, but Colin was, Colin was incredibly, Colin and Kevin were incredibly kind to me. They, they, they made it clear that I could come up whenever I wanted. Um, they, they handled my travel um, and they got uh, their races so that I could be a zombie. I, I, I got to play a, a, bit, a bit part in the film and get my brains blowing out on screen, which was, yeah, turned out to be you know, a, a, bucket, a bucket list thing. <laughs> That's awesome. It was, you, uh, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a dream come true. Yeah, do you, do you know if there's any plans on, on doing the same with The Boy on the Bridge? Or is it... We try. We tried. We tried. So um, Cami, Cami uh, has the rights to Boy. Oh, Cammy's company, Poison Chef, has the rights to Boy, which he purchased at the same time as the rights to Girl. And we've tried a couple of times to uh, to get that up and running, but we haven't managed. And I think probably at this stage it's it's not likely. I do have um, several other projects going with with Poison Chef, with Cammy, and with Colin. Um, you know, there was another one of these collaborations, like my collaboration with Peter Gross or my collaboration with Mike Perkins, where it just it just worked. And mm. yeah, I, I loved it, and they were happy with with the work I did. So we're still we're still working on other things. But boy, on the bridges on the back burner. I gotcha. So now that the Rampart trilogy is ending, what are you working on now? I'm working on a story about a dimension hopping rabbit. Uh, it's it's called a rabbit of the Pandominion. And it's, it's, it's basically about, a, um, a, a, again, it's a, it's a, a juvenile protagonist. It's a, a, young, a young girl on a world where uh, instead, of, instead of apes and monkeys, it was rabbits who won the sentience lottery. So the, the, the dominant species, the, um, the, the, the self-aware species, is rabbit descendant. Uh, it's, 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 it's about a, um, a girl from that world who is... Uh, She's traveling to a to a competition. She's won a, a, a won a, a prize in a competition, um, and she goes off world for the first time. And awful things happen. She 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 uh, she goes astray. Uh, the next thing she knows, uh, uh, this sort of quasi-military ent entity called the Cello are trying to kill her. They're sending uh, assassins after her, um, and then um, she she ends up on a another world, but actually she ends up on our world uh, at a certain point, and um, that's all I can say at the moment. It, it, it's still sort of, it's still, it's still fairly, fairly formless and uh, formless and inchoate, but it's a, it's a big, sprawly, um, other dimension, alternate history kind of narrative. A lot of the books that I read and, and loved this year have been kind of, um, have, have been about alternate worlds. I mean, Micaiah Johnson's um, The Space Between Worlds, Adrian Tchaikovsky's Doors of Eden. Um, it's I just had a hankering to write a write an alternate universe story. Okay, fantastic. So, last question I got for you: uh, What are some book recommendations? I guess beyond <laughs> the two that you just you just mentioned. Oh, um, okay. Uh, so, um, Mexican Gothic. 
is amazing by Sylvia Marina, um, which yeah, it, it, it does what it says on the label. It's a fantastic gothic horror story set in Mexico City uh, early in the 20th century. I love that. Um, there's a novel I read this year called, oh, I thought the new Susanna Clark, Piranesi, is amazing. Utterly, utterly unlike uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, it's terse, it's beautiful, it's lyrical. That, that, that was a, a great book. Um, what else, what else, what else? Um, a book by, by Alex Phoebe called Mordew, uh, which is a sort of um, a really fascinating dark fantasy set in a city which is built on the dead body of God. So the, so the soil, the mud, the earth of the city spontaneously generates. There's life coming up from under the ground. Hmm. It's, re it's really dark and strange. Um, that, that, was, that was fun. I loved um, Naomi Novik's uh, Deadly Education. Uh, I thought that was a really fantastic read. That's enough to go on with, I think. I'll do, I'll do, a, I'll do a plug. For, oh. for your for your daughter's book, <laughs> so oh, Endscape. <laughs> so Endscape from Galantz, uh by by Mike's lovely daughter Louise, uh, who is actually going to be joining us for TBRCon next year, um, al alongside cool. you. Uh, so I'll, I'll definitely throw that one out there. Uh, I think we've got one or two reviews on the blog for that one, so go check those out. Um, and yeah, and I know one of my bloggers loved Piranesi last year. Uh, I think it was in his top 10 books. Uh, I think it was in Jan's list. And then, uh, yeah, I'll definitely look up. You said it was Mordu? Is that was the, the one with Mordu. the... Mordu. Okay, I'll definitely yeah. look at that. That one sounds really interesting. One, one more. Um, yeah. Ray, Ray Bearer. Ray Bearer by Jordan okay. Ifueko. Yes. Also, uh, brilliant, brilliant fantasy. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, well Mike, uh, clearly Fall of Coley comes out on the 23rd. So just a few days from now, uh, ending, ending the Rampart trilogy, uh, definitely going to be looking forward to your, uh, your new rabbit novel. Uh, that sounds very interesting. So I'm looking forward to hearing some more about that. Um, and everybody, I mean, if you haven't picked up the girl with all the gifts, uh, why, um, uh, it's phenomenal. Um, you can go watch the movie. I'm, I'm sure it's still on Amazon prime. I think it is. I know HBO's had it a little bit. It may be on HBO Max too, but definitely go go watch it if you don't have the time for the read. Because I mean, I feel like nobody has time to read these days. Um, but uh, Mike, it's always a pleasure having you on. Uh, I always love having these chats with you. Uh, we'll definitely try to do That's something true. before TBRCon next year. But if not, we'll see each other for that. But uh, just thank you again yeah. for taking the time out today, uh, and it's been great catching up. Yeah, I think it's been really good. Thanks, David. Absolutely. Cheers, cheers,